Well, good morning, everybody. Well, it's good morning for me. I don't know what time it is for you. And I hope you're all well. Snow is falling outside. I'm wrapped up well and truly. Heaters are blasting. And uh, <clears throat> hibernating, really. There's not a, not a lot else we can do, is there, at the moment? I hope, as I say, you're in fine form. I have a lovely guest for you today. Um, a lady I met a few years ago now um, when on one of my great adventures, uh, a trip I have very, very fond memories of because uh, it sort of encapsulated all the things I hold dear. Um, a little travel, France, wonderful food, wonderful drink, great company, bit of history, architecture, countryside and... Um, Really good company. Um, you have no doubt heard of cognac. Uh, I've been lucky enough to visit uh, cellars in, in cognac and see that lovely part of the world. But you may or may not know that further south, uh, another French brand is made, which for some reason tends to be seen as the poorer cousin of cognac. But in my humble opinion... It's very much not. It is, of course, Armagnac. Now, the lady I'm talking to today uh, is a, an English lady who embarked on a great adventure many years ago when she abandoned her life in England, packed the kids in the car and headed to France with no more than a smattering of French to help her along her way. She ended up in the Jeurs in the beautiful rolling shadows of the Pyrenees countryside down in Gascony. And she's created a new life there. Um, and her story and the story of that region and its people is an absolutely absorbing one that I got to love when I spent some time with her, as I say, a few years ago. So uh, let's waste no more time and have a little chat to the lovely Amanda Garnham. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning, Nick. It's <laughs> lovely to, to hear from you in this deepest, darkest Gascony, as you call it. Well, it's not very dark, to be honest. It's a lot brighter, though, but uh, you're pretty chilly and I'm pretty chilly. What's the weather like there at the moment? It's absolutely foul, to be perfectly honest. We had the most fabulous long sort of autumn with um, beautiful, uh, sunny, really hot, sunny days. And then suddenly, overnight, it was winter. Yeah. And it's been teeming down with rain, deluge everywhere. Um, I was out on the on the roads recently with a journalist who'd come down from Paris because obviously I can't have my normal journalist visits and stuff because this is such an important time of the year for us. Oh. Uh, with the distillation happening, but um, unfortunately, it just ticked it down the whole time. But uh, it's, it's trying. The sun is trying to get through. We don't have too many long. Like that. I mean, it, most of the time the sun will uh, make an appearance, um, and it, it's 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 not too bad. It's not as bad as when we first came here. I knew I knew minus fifteen when I first came here, but really? it's obviously got a lot milder now. It's just a bit wet and muddy. Gosh, I mean, I didn't realise it got quite that cold. I mean, you're sort of virtually in the shadow of the Pyrenees, so I suppose that makes sense. But when I was with you, I think it was sort of autumnish, wasn't it? And um, yeah. 
Yeah. You had the tail end of summer, which it, it is beautiful and hot there, properly hot. Yeah. Um, well, why don't you tell listeners, and I'd like to hear the story again, how you just sort of turned up in this place in the middle of nowhere. And it's a great story because you literally did rock up. You don't didn't speak French or anything, did you? No, didn't speak French. Arrived with um, um, uh, a husband, um, two cars and four <laughs> children and two Labradors and a Jack Russell. Oh. Um, in the middle of the bloody night <laughs> um, to this place that we we had already sort of done a little sort of uh, repair of, of, of the area. So we knew a little bit this was an area we wanted to discover. So we ended up, um, the idea was to rent somewhere for the first um, eight months or so until we found a house that we wanted to live in. So but we arrived in the dead of night. We drove down in two separate cars. My children, I have to say at the time, were seven five three and five months old and oh. i had all the children in the car with me um and uh my husband had all the dogs with him <laughs> and all the clothes and a trailer full of the trailer full of uh, uh clothes and so on anyway we we finally arrived at this little little village um but it's you know the lanes here they're it's pitch black there are little tiny lanes um no lights no street lights, no cat's eyes, forget it. You're in the middle of the La France Profonde, really, truly. Yeah. Anyway, so we, we turned up and we found it, we, we found this lovely house. But as I said to you before, I mean, I didn't really, I mean, it was O level French that I had. Uh, I could get by, I could order, you know, a rent or something. But uh, so the all the more um, detailed uh, stuff that you need when you're living somewhere, it was. Absolutely impossible but um the people here are have were just so welcoming and friendly and um baskets of fruit put on the back doorstep really you know, they we were welcomed open arms definitely and the only thing i would say is that people coming to somewhere like this you just have to um be uh, um commit yourself to being part of the community because it's very much small family communities and family is very important here uh, and once you embrace all of that and you join in with them you are so welcome they, they love it and of course you're quite exotic because you've come from somewhere different mm. but uh, no so it was it was a bit uh, hairy to begin with i have to say <laughs> i mean it's something that i've dreamt daydreamed about doing but the actual reality is a very different thing did you and that's great to hear that you found a you know a warm welcome if you pitched in uh, i suppose I, I don't know would you think it would be like maybe maybe not now but maybe years 10 20 years ago pitching up in the middle of you know darkest devon somewhere maybe it would be like yeah. that would we yeah. be as welcoming i don't know i don't know i think and it is a little bit like that um here i mean it's it's they were um they were a bit sort of uh, well, i don't know what i was going to say sorry i've, I've completely lost my thread there. <laughs> but, just, how did yeah. you get wrapped up or how did you I, I mean presumably it was something as prosaic as look i need to earn some money um exactly. is exactly. that what happened yeah i mean exactly uh, we needed to make some money my husband went off to the uk at the time um and um tried to do continues he was actually a flower miller at the time oh. um, selling um flowers still over there so and doing county fairs and all sorts of things so he was doing his thing but as i was sort of abandoned in the middle of nowhere <laughs> the, the hardest thing was 
you know, you're suddenly, you know, really at sea because you just don't know anybody and you've got to sort of make yourself, you've got to join in. I mean, when we found our house, that was really when things started going a little bit more smoothly. I used to drive my youngest daughter, who was, as I said, only a baby, around in the car um, trying to get her to sleep as and um, I would drive up these little lanes. I mean, we are talking 22 years ago, because it was 1997 when I came. Okay. So um, we're talking a long time ago, and there was a lot of abandoned houses, and there weren't very many English people living here at the time, or, you know, étrangers, foreigners. Because <laughs> there's now quite a lot of people from um, Paris and uh, also uh, Dutch people here. Right. So, um, I just used to wander around, drive around all these little country lanes. Oh, I had some very interesting escapades by falling in ditches with the car and being towed out by a tractor. And there's nothing like doing that sort of thing to get to know your, you know, the, the neighbours or the, the the local people. Yeah, okay, needs must. Monsieur, you know, this very red face of the, the car sort of at a 45 degree angle in a ditch and you're having to get a tractor. Oh, you learn very quickly. You learn very, very quickly when you're in at the deep end, as it were. And um, so I know, and I I drove up this little lane and I thought I can always, you know, if somebody lives there, you know, I can always just say, I'm sorry, I got lost and I'm English. (laughs) Anyway, I I drove up and there was this house and it's just a very square house. If you can imagine a sort of, well, they call them a maison de maître here. It's a very square house, like the one children's children draw when they're little with windows on the side, door in the middle. Brambles, though, you couldn't get to the front door. It hadn't been lived in for 40 years. Oh, really? What they call um, um, an heritage. So it was a family thing. It wasn't for sale. No for sale signs, nothing. And um, uh, I just sort of fell in love with this place. And it was literally, having searched length and breadth of the Gers, which is the area we're actually in, mm. it was... Um, that we 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 looked for like eight months we ended up finding a place that was five minutes drive up the road right. and we found uh the person and we were able to um the person who it belonged to and we were able to make a deal with them even to the point and i don't know if i should probably say this on air but you know when you uh pitch up at their house and you've got your you uh, tell you um a certain amount of the money you tell the no tear is it's going to cost this much money and <laughs> Then you take a carrier bag full of cash. Oh, no. the rest. I don't think things like that happen anymore. So really? the, little, the little old guy scuttled into the back room to count the cash. It's very funny. Oh, very funny. I mean, that's the stuff dreams are made of. Did you have to sort of go and knock on his door and say, make yourself understood then? I love your property. Yes. I'd like to buy it. <laughs> yes, a bit like that. <laughs> I did have, there was a lady who was helping us, an estate agent, um, an English estate agent who'd been here for some some years and she helped a lot. So I have to say it was not just me knocking and with a bit of pigeon French, no, no. Um, But that was really when I first discovered Armagnac um, because um, even though I'd known Armagnac a little bit, back of my mind, it wasn't something I drank regularly or anything in the UK and it was never particularly popular at that time. But um, we, they served us as a celebration of this uh, deal that was going through with their house. They served us coffee, first of all. She got out all this, the very fine china, these beautiful little cups and saucers, which obviously never saw the light of day. <laughs> in went the coffee. And we so we drank the coffee. And then after that, in your still warm coffee cup, uh. they poured this very old Armagnac, which was very, um, was like sort of, Madderized. It was sort of very old. It was something I'd never, I, and I believe it was actually a very, very old Armagnac, but no right. label. 
bottle or anything like that you know it was just and it was just such an experience but when I think back now I think gosh did we really do that I don't remember you know it's a long time ago and my children were all so small and they've all grown up here I mean what was I 35 when I came here so it's and it had as you said earlier this is what I wanted to say earlier like a pipe dream to go and a lot of people have those sort of pipe well, but the thing is, I say go and do it because you just don't know. You you, you know you. There's always a way, and you there's always a way and a will, and you'll find that, and you'll meet people, and you. It's just being open, I think. And and I now think back, and I think I don't know if I'd have the courage nowadays to do no. that sort of thing. Um, but it, it, I'm so pleased we did. It was very scary, uh, but you kind of just take it all in your stride at the time. I think. Did you when, ever first? Did you ever? lie in bed at night Amanda and think I wish I hadn't done this there was only a time when I did it because as I said the children were seven five three and five months and so my eldest daughter I would have to take her to school because they didn't have any French I had given them some French lessons not me personally but I had had French <laughs> lessons done for them um in England before leaving but seven is still quite young very tough for them yeah and I had to drive her to school. I had to get her into school, first of all, explain, try and do all the, you know, it's, it was, it's tough making yourself understood, but I, I got there in the end um, and got her into school. And then it's all the insurance they have to have. And then they have to have the vaccinations and all these different things that we didn't have. Um, so anyway, and I would drive home sometimes. I would take her to school and she'd be, oh, I don't want to go. Oh, and I'd say, well, and so I'd drive home and in tears thinking, what the hell have we done to our children yeah. doing this is so mean and I'd feel so bad but I would go and pick her up for lunch and then take her back after lunch um and you know n- and for a while it was you know I don't want I want to be back with my friends oh, the, the school was so horrid and <laughs> children can be really bloody mean to one another of course so, they can. but um no and now I mean she's um that particular one I'm talking about it's a psychiatric nurse she's got I have a granddaughter who's two um she's uh you know no no desire ever to go back so those were really only my my misgivings earlier on and a little bit with school but schools here were brilliant education is fantastic um and the only thing is they don't learn it's all french law and french uh history and french everything so you know i i say funny sayings like you know don't teach your grandmother to suck eggs or something and then what the hell are you talking about so we're on a slightly different um, wavelength in that respect, but they learn. So did she marry a Frenchman? Um, yes. Uh, yes. It's just amazing uh, how they just crack on and adapt, isn't it? Yeah. And of course, they're totally, I mean, I am now bilingual, um, uh, what do you say, fluent, but they're bi- yeah. totally bilingual. I think there's oh, quite really? a big difference. I mean, because of course they did all their schooling here. They're baccalaureate. Um, all of them and so my eldest is um, as I said the psychiatric nurse um, with a little girl my other daughter Henrietta is um, she actually did all of her studies here and then she decided she's my arty farty child and she went off to live in London because she wanted to do um, photography and fashion and all sorts of things like that which of course in this part of the world is very much of it so um, she went went off to London and it, actually she's still there but she's going to come back to France next year um and then I have my son who is um uh working for an Armagnac house now funnily enough oh uh, really 
and um, my youngest daughter, who's um, an agent immobilier, so an estate agent, an independent estate agent. So they've all very much settled in. They all love it here. Um, yeah, they wouldn't, I don't think they would consider uh, for once going back to the UK. And certainly I wouldn't either. No. I mean, and if you tough it out, you get the rewards, I guess, is the is the moral of the story. But You do. Yeah, you do. I think you just have to, you have to join in with the community. As I said, it's all very, all about family here and communities and the village. I mean, you blink and you've gone through my village. Yeah. Probably about five people live in it. But, you know, there are lots of little outlying farms and things but everybody knows everybody obviously the grapevine as we say talking about armagnac but uh, the grapevine here is uh, uh works very well um but it's uh, no it's you have to be part of part of it you have to join in you can't just be in your little your little bubble um which i, which find is, which is, I guess is the temptation if you're um on your own and you've got your little your own little sort of tribe there and, and the temptation must be to throw your arms around them and, and sort of stay insular but the best thing you can do is get out exactly you have to do that i mean i used to have to go every little village does its own fet in the summer yes um and uh, i used to go up there and say you know how, can i help how can i join in and so i would be there um uh cutting quail up and, and you know <laughs> emptying them drawing them and all these things really? i'm sorry my sometimes i i forget the um because i speak so much french i forget forget sometimes my english words oh. so excuse me if i throw in the odd how funny <laughs> and, and the armagnac thing how did you get so closely involved then well my hist historically um i was always uh, i worked in pr in the uk yeah um, for many, many years. And um, so my brain kind of thinks like that. And I was thinking, well, I discovered this fabulous product. Um, and I just thought they, they know how to make this beautiful product, but they don't know how to sort of get it out there, market it and, and, and start talking to people about it. So um, I, obviously, with my PR hat on, I approached uh, first of all, I approached um, an Armagnac house that you may be familiar with in the UK more, uh, Jano, because I mm -hmm. thought they're a, they're a biggish house. They're going to understand a little bit. They're going to um, have they under, understand what PR probably is because you talk to them about relation publique or pub, public relations here, and they what? Really? But you say communications, and they sort of yes, okay, understand. And honestly, in the in the, I've been doing it for 17 years. I've been working for the Bureau National Interprofessionnel de l'Armagnac, which is the official Armagnac body. So they like don't, the title, don't they, the French? Yeah, they do. And <laughs> so we call it the BNIA. And I've been working for them for 17 years now. And in that time, so much has changed because it's the new generations coming in now. These um, younger uh, members of the family, men and women, a lot of women as well in Armagnac, which is quite interesting. Yes, and they're taking over and they know how to communicate. And of course, we have internet. When I first came here, I didn't have a mobile phone. No. So you can imagine when I was traipsing around the countryside in the pitch black with a journalist and I don't have GPS and I didn't have, you know, anything like that. And so you sort of go and knock on the door of a bar and say, you know, really? can you tell me how to get to such and such a producer? And they say, well, it's around that, past that tree, over that bump, you know, and then you blow, you know. So it was quite, quite amusing at the time. But so things have changed hugely. And so now they will really, they're really all um, up to speed and very dynamic with the the, uh, the communication. So, of course, I was doing... 
I wanted to talk about communications and PR. So, but I and I obviously also thought that Jano would probably be a company that would have a budget because you know that it's yeah. a small. We've got to remember we're in a small. A very rural part of the world where they don't have money to throw at um, publicity and so on, um, and they did. It's not advertising, and they didn't really sort of grasp it terribly. So, but Shannon was. Um, um, they were very interested, uh, but in the in the end, um, they it was run at the time by an, an Italian family. And the father, he'd just gone, he hadn't, I had put in this proposal and he just went to London and took on a PR company, having not even looked at my PR proposal. So I thought, oh, well, some people who, you know, too bad, really, for you in a way. Yeah. Um, so, but, you know, things happen. I always believe, I'm a firm believer that things happen at the right time for the right reasons. Yeah. Um, and maybe I was a little bit too um, uh, premature in my thoughts um, because my youngest daughter was still very young. So I did lots of other things like um, picking grapes and picking strawberries and writing a few articles and anything and everything. I'm quite a, as you know, quite a an active person. I get, you know, get in there and, and you know, when needs must, you've got to Absolutely. earn some money. So, you know, come what weather and everything, I was out there in the vines and things. Um, and you get, it's a great way of getting to know people and, and learning, obviously, the language, which was really important. Um, and then um, uh, a little bit later, I can't remember exactly how long, how much later, um, I approached the Armagnac office, the one that I'm working for now. Right. And, um, I was taken on. I was taken on officially to be the um, press attaché for uh, the UK, primarily the UK at that time. Right. OK. And But now your remit is a lot larger than that, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, because, of course, of my English. Yes. Um, I now do. I'm press attaché generally for everything. Um, I deal with obviously all the um, uh, English speaking countries. So anything. And I do. I'm also the uh, lead educator for Armagnac. So I do masterclasses for um, uh, bars, rest, you know, hotels, that sort of thing who want to. They've got a program to teach their bartenders. Um, I do Armagnac Academies, which are academies we run. Um, they're paying, paid for, where you have two people come and they learn, you know, for a whole day, really in-depth Armagnac um, education. Um, so I do all of that, and I've done all of that in sort of the UK, New York, San Francisco, China, right. all over the place. Um, yeah, obviously, we were supposed to be doing something. We were supposed to be going back to New York last year. Uh, September but obviously that was not, wasn't possible um so yeah that's what I do now so I'm still attaché de presse but I I just do because we're a very small team so um you have to do lots of different you know wear many hats and so my other hats are educating really and spreading the word about Armagnac generally yeah yes yeah absolutely and when I I can't remember when it was Amanda probably two three years ago now but when I came over Mm. I can honestly say it's one of the most magical trips I've done in my whole career. Um, oh, really? Oh, it really okay. was because, you know, because, A, yes, I'm a Francophile and I love, you know, like you, I love the whole provenance. Mm. I, love, I love the nitty gritty. I love the people behind it. And that, I like that story. That's what gets me going. But I'll never forget going into, and I can't remember exactly where it was, but we went up into the Paradis 
of one of yeah. the houses where they store the old Armagnac in these amazing yeah. huge glass bonbon jars. Yeah. And um, and it was very moving, you know. Um, I thought that sounds odd, but it was a dusty old place, cobwebs, these beautiful great glass, like um, or Christmas baubles almost. Yes. Uh, yeah. filled with this liquid and then just strung around the neck there were these little tags saying 1942 and yeah and that I found that really quite really quite something I don't know how to describe it but it um their relationship with nature and the land and you know the figs and the walnuts and the everything grows wild in the hedgerows doesn't it yes fennel and everything and everything's just yeah it's it's untamed countryside mm. um, and and the other wonderful thing is, is the sort of biodiversity here because you you know you go more towards the west and you've got you go towards bordeaux country and it's like wall to wall vines where every square centimeter has to be a vine because the the land is worth so much uh, whereas here is, is the biodiversity you've got um woods and and rivers and um sim cereal and you obviously got the obligatory ducks because as you know more ducks live in this part of the world <laughs> they there are humans um so it's obviously sparsely populated and little farms so but farmers can manage with maybe 30 cows and they might have a few ducks and they might have a bit of sunflower and a few vines and that's how and unfortunately it's very much still like that so it's a landscape of mixed farming which is really lovely it's polyculture rather than a monoculture of yes and vast tracts of woodland and forest and 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 do you think you know wild <laughs> tons of wild boar and uh, deer and things. Yeah, and not to mention the Palombiere. Yes, yes, um, the Palombe. Mm -hmm. but, but without getting into politics, which we are all sick to death of, do you think that that is something that is sustainable even now, or will it start to change? I'm hoping it will be sustainable. I mean, there was a time um, that um, local farmers were saying to me, oh, they just want to get rid of all of us little people and have these really big farms. It's not that way at the moment, and I mean that's I mean that's been for some time. As I said, for 22 years, the landscape in that respect has not really changed very much at all, and so they are still Good. continuing like that. And um, I think obviously the the powers that be appreciate that that is really important. Um, no, I don't think it will change. Well, said it it may a little bit. I mean, obviously a lot of the um, Armagnac producers now are making wine as well, so that has yes. been something that has changed but um they they need to, i mean if you imagine you're making this product that you have to sit you can't you're not getting any money for it for ages you've got to um wait for it to age for you know 5 10 15 20 years what are you going to be you know where's your money coming from in the meantime so you can understand why they do the van der Peter Côte de Gascogne wines yeah um which you actually see an awful lot in the UK as well, the, the Côte de Gascogne wines. It's a huge um, market for, for them. Um, so, yeah, you do. Uh, I don't think it is going to um, change terribly. No, I really don't. I'm, I'm crossing my fingers anyway. I mean, it's, and, you know, there's a, there's a, it's the little enclave of all of these families. They all, um, they know all these little clues and tips and tricks and of course. they're they're very much you know uh, we're in a bit of a bubble in in many respects like that here because of that I think and yeah. I don't think it's going to change no I don't think it will change 
I mean, one of the things I was going to, you mentioned the, 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 the wines of Gascony. I was going to say to you actually off air, but um, I want to try and get some Flock de Gascogne, which I was massively impressed with when, in yeah. fact, we stopped. You picked me up. Did you pick me up in Bordeaux? Is that the nearest? Toulouse, probably. I think it was Toulouse. Toulouse, you're right. It was Toulouse. Yeah, it's a little bit yeah. potted off in your little car. And um, and along the way, we said, you know, you said in classic sort of French style, let's stop and have a spot of lunch. <laughs> we stopped at this beautiful place. And, of course, out comes the foie gras. And you said, what, what we must have as an aperitif is some flock to yeah. Gascogne. What on earth is that? Oh, well, it's, uh, well, I'll let you explain well, it, but it was a beautiful aperitif. Flotte de Gascogne, a lot of people think it's a, um, a fortified wine, but it's not. Flotte de Gascogne is grape juice. It's basically this year's grape juice Yeah. Uh, that has uh, two-thirds grape juice and one-third and one Armagnac, a young Armagnac, so like the previous year's Armagnac mixed with two-thirds grape, grape juice. Okay. Uh, and it's... Um, not aged in barrels it is aged in um, normally in stainless steel um for um an, another year and so it's this very fresh fruity there's a white one and there's a red one they're both quite sweet really but the white is a slightly um yes. slightly less sweet than the red one i mean people often compare say well it's like pinot de charente but it's not quite the same thing in that pinot tends to age theirs in um, oak barrels yeah, no, it's totally unlike anything I'd ever tasted. It's um, it's sort of I don't know. Would you say it was slightly? Um, what's the Italian liqueur? Um, not sure. My mind's gone. But um, it was. It's a very bold, very sort of structured, rigid taste. If you can, you know, if you can picture what I'm trying to describe. But, but a really sort of you know bright, bright, lovely, you know. Um, back straightener i suppose would be a good way of describing it um, yes and it's, it's not it's not high in alcohol it's about 15 16 17 percent right. ABV, something yeah. like that so it's great also in the summer like watered down you know with a i don't know tonic or sparkling water if you want to make it in a long drink and stuff and we actually use it in quite a lot of armagnac cocktails as well no it's really really fruity i think that's one of the it's really fruity but it's got that kick which yeah. is really yeah yeah it's got a bit of sort of fresh spirit type type feel to it like uh you like so that would be the young yeah that would be the young yes exactly um so yeah that was one of the things i need to talk to you about is where i can get myself some of that um but <laughs> quite separate to that and then we were off we went into the into the wilds and visited these amazing chateau uh, of various sizes and grandeur some of which were spectacular and and you know manicured like tarikay perhaps and then yes very much to one man band um yeah. gentleman who who said come in here and he digs around in his back cellar and comes up with a bottle of and i remember very distinctly we drank a, a, or tasted a, a bottle of 1966 which which was amusing yeah. because of a the connotations for england and the world cup and b it was one of oh, the that's right yes do you yes. remember yes um, i do remember and well, then Sorry, carry on. Sorry, and I was just going to say, and then on we went, you know, there was an 1880-something, and, and it was just a remarkable yeah. um, exploration of time, and you can just lose yourself in it. So let's talk about why Armagnac um, is not as well known as its cousin, the Cognac, who is very grand, but what's, what's yeah. special about it? For, in your let opinion? me tell you, well, let me tell you. Well, first of all, you were saying earlier that, um, you know, walking into that paradis when you went up there in the bonbon, in the sort of forgotten the way up there yeah. in the cellars, 
they um, traditionally, and it still happens now, the little producers, that is their bank. They don't put their money in the bank. They will have that that Armagnac because there will be négociants, the traders that will want to possibly buy or they right. vintages are very specific to Armagnac. You don't really find vintages in cognac, okay. uh, a little bit, but not very much. Um, but vintage is really, really important for Armagnac. And um, so they would keep those. They will distill every year, even if it's just a couple of barrels, because it might just be a couple of barrels and keep them in their cellars. Um, and um, cellars, I have to say also, as you probably, because we think with in English terms, we think of cellars as underground, but the cellars yeah. here, what we call shea, are, tend to be above ground. But they are humid cellars and there are dry cellars and all for different parts points of different times, different stages of the aging, really. Um, so they keep these these um, vintages as bank. If their daughter's going to get married, they, maybe they'll sell a barrel of their almond really? so they've got the money to, or they need a new car or something like that. So, and that still very much happens now. Um, uh, well. off. I've gone off track a bit, just to tell you about the vintages, really. Yes, and we were talking about almond and cognac and things like that. Yeah, yeah almond and cognac. Well, what you have to remember, first of all, is we are so tiny in comparison to cognac. Right. We sell in Armagnac something like 4 million bottles a year, and cognac is well over 200 million. Really? Uh, we, um, as I, I talked to you earlier, it's little tiny houses, little tiny farms, really, more than anything. As you said, there were a couple of, there are a couple of bigger family um, producers and some very beautiful chateaux in the area but a lot of the it's it's a real jumble of lots of different types of of pr producers and properties some slightly bigger than others but there's no industry here it's all little yeah it's located because we're about um if you imagine that triangle between bordeaux toulouse and the mountains yeah you, we're we're inland for a start so cognac is on the coast so it was so easy for the Dutch traders to go in there and um, pick up wines and spirits. Right. And whereas Bordeaux was held by the English and the English weren't letting anything. The only way, of course, is to move anything out is through the, along the rivers at yes. that time. So um, the English weren't letting anything other than their own wines travel down the rivers. So uh, the Dutch, thankfully, came in and um, they decided to distill the distillation. They were allowed to move spirits, but they weren't allowed to use wine. So eventually, even though Armagnac is officially 150 years older than Cognac, we really didn't get going quite so quickly simply because of that a geographical position more than anything else. Um, yeah. But um, they were distilling here you know, a, a, a long time. I mean, it was the first talk, the first writings, I don't know if you remember this, but the first writings about Armagnac was in 1310, when Prior Vital Dufour, who was a, a local uh, cardinal from Aos, he wrote about a book, um, uh, um, or wrote, wrote about the 40 virtues of Armagnac in this book, which uh, is now served in the Vatican Library in Rome. Really? It was Egua Adente, so fiery water. Um, and that was in 1310, so that's what we base our, base our sort of history on, on, on him. But he wrote some very funny things, and you may remember some of them. If one adds herbs, it extracts their virtues. It makes redness disappear and heat in the eyes. It stops tears from eyes, 
heals hepatitis if one drinks it soberly. It heals gout, cankers, and fistula by injection. It heals wounds by application. And this is the funny one. Frequent anointment of a paralyzed member will render it to its normal state. So you imagine what you will from that one. But it's, it goes on. And this, these are the, um, the documents that are kept in the Vatican Library in Rome. In 2010, really, when we celebrated our 700th anniversary. Um, <laughs> Anyway, getting back to just quickly, um, obviously there are quite a lot of differences between cognac and armagnac, even though everybody automatically always compares the two because they are the great, the two great based brandies yes. um, from France. I mean, then of course you have the fabulous Calvados as well. Indeed. Um, uh, cognac is, uh, it's mostly run by, um, it's, there are some very small cognac producers who are fabulous, I have to say, but you've got little, um, you've got the, these big companies like the four main ones, like your Hennessy and uh, Courvoisier, Martel, Remy Martin. Hennessy controls like 50, over 50% of the market, the cognac right. market. So there's a big difference there. We don't have any big companies like that here. And... 90, I think probably between 98 and 99% of the cognac is exported. Whereas in with cognac, it's a 50-50, 50% export and 50% consumed on the domestic market. Yes. So it's still very French in that respect. Um, so yeah, we have as I said, tiny little producers rather than these big ones. So they don't also have the the funds to do what necessary to do. You won't ever see big advertising or anything for Armagnac because they just don't have the the wherewithal. Uh, mm. No, and the, but that's also part of its charm, isn't it? And I, and and I love the fact that you know you drive along those country roads in the middle of nowhere, as you say, and then every mile or two there's a farm and there'll be a little sign saying armagnac yes. and you can armagnac, pop down and see an old lady or something can't you yeah exactly exactly and that's what is so lovely i mean i i still have so many other places to discover in fact the really? um armagnac office we have produced um uh, it's called escapade on armagnac it's a map like a wine route but it's an armagnac route and it's got all the little places i mean you could that people if they're interested can look on the armagnac.fr website and they can see um they can you know visit places because as much as armagnac is a, a drink a fabulous brandy it is also a destination it's a great place to come and visit because you're I don't know, two and a half hour drive from the West Coast. So you can go to the beaches and then you've got two and a half hours to the um, to the mountains. So you could ski as well. In, in, even though we're very isolated, we're also very accessible. Yeah, uh, very much so. And, and I'd imagine uh, as long as you've got a happy driver, a, a little touring yeah. um, route of, of pottering along to some of these places, stopping for lunch would be just delightful. Yeah, exactly. It's it's fabulous. If you can do that, you get somebody to drive for you. I do do that with another hat on, um, but uh, that's for another another day. I'll tell you about that. But <laughs> we must try and set it up, Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> we'll try and set up another one. But um, so and the other, obviously, we're talking about differences, so people get a bit of an understanding about the difference between cognac and armagnac. I mean, we talked about the different the people here. I mean, when we talk terroir, as you know, we're not just talking about what's under our feet and the climate, but we're also talking people. It's a very much a human thing. It's the type of people that live in a different area um, yeah. and they have a different philosophy uh, 
in cognac as they do in Armagnac. Um, so that's a different mindset completely. Um, in Armagnac, we're allowed to use 10 different grape varieties that are permitted in the AOC because it is an Appellation d'Origine Controle product as well. Right. We remember. We're allowed to use 10 different grape varieties. Um, mostly we're using the four uh, grapes of Uniblanc, um, Full Blanche, which was the historical grape variety for Armagnac prior to the Phylloxera crisis. Yeah. Um, Baco, which is a great, it's the only hybrid allowed in any AOC in France, and that's specific to Armagnac, and um, Colombard. So those are the four main ones, but there are producers. Um, there's one just up the road from me who's planted all 10 of the grapes. Right. Um, which is, and she's actually done, she's actually made um, a blend of the the six other different grape varieties, um, just, you know, which is really, really special. So, of, of, of course, the only way to keep those um, other grapes in the AOC is, is providing the producers plant them. So we that gives huge diversity. And I think that's probably one of the key things when you're um, investigating and discovering Armagnac is the diversity that you find not just um, between the different houses, but even within individual houses. I mean, I just recently was the, I was judging for the International Spirit Challenge um, and I was sent loads and loads of different spirits. I think I had like, I was in the brandy section, so I did <laughs> and all these wonderful things. And, but I, obviously there's cognac and armagnac and calvados. Um, and the, the cognac, I mean, it was, they're very linear, really. They, I couldn't fault them technically. They were very good technically, but they were very sort of. It was like watching a black and white picture in a way. Yeah. Looking at black, rather than it wasn't. Whereas Armagnac tends to sort of seesaw. You get these amazing highs and then you get the low. So it's it's so different all the time. It's it's very very diverse. Yeah, very much so, and and. It's that sort of colourful creativity, broader broader palette thing that's so attractive, isn't it? Um, uh, before we dash off, I mean, amazingly, look, we've been chatting for 40, 45 minutes or something. Um, we must talk about musketeers. Oh, yes. <laughs> D'Artagnan, the hero of the yes. region. Yes. Well, I'm an Armagnac musketeer, I'm very proud to say. Oh. Um, and um, there is actually, there are the musketeers, obviously, D'Artagnan, um, was born, D'Artagnan is a real person, and he was born um, in a village called Lupiac, which is just to the south of the Gers. Um, and uh, yeah, I, we haven't talked about cigars yet either. I'm just thinking about <laughs> cigars and Armagnac. There's so much to say. You have to come back on. <laughs> um, but he was born in the south of the Gers, and there are statues of him all over the place. He's the local hero. Um, and he, it's his legend says that he took. Uh, Armagnac to the court of kings and when they were passing through um, he would come and pick up um, they would come and collect Armagnac for the the royal court and so on on their journeys but um, there is the company of Armagnac musketeers and it's an organization there are about 4,500 Armagnac musketeers all around the world wow. squadrons it's all very military because of D'Artagnan's history of course um, and there's a British squadron um, there's, they're all over the world, uh, Senegal, you name it, they're all over the place. Um, and certain squadrons are more active than others. Norway is another one, there's a very, very good one in, in Norway and they do lots of events. 
Um, and um, yeah, so we've created one now in the uh, in the UK as the mm. British British um, Squadron that was created um, at uh, by the past master. He's now the past master. He was the master at the time of the Worshipful Company of Distillers. Oh yeah. And um, yeah, so that's uh, um, I'm absolutely also very proud to say that I'm a livery man of the Worshipful Company of Distillers too. So, <laughs> well, look, let's reconvene how about when we can do it safely i'll come out and we'll do a podcast yeah. about armagnac and cigars and and the musketeers together yes because armagnac and cigars is such a as you know fabulous it, they work so well together they do you've got this sort of you know the cigar saying i'm gonna win and the and the armagnac saying no i'm gonna win and it's sort of this clash together and then suddenly they all blend together and become this wonderful sublime experience so yes let's talk about cigars another time yeah absolutely i can't wait to come back out and see you when the time is right um oh, let's do. keep in touch and um and it's lovely to catch up with you again amanda as i say it was a wonderful trip I, and and i hold it very dearly and i can't wait to come back out well we look forward to seeing you i'll be picking you up at the airport you tell me when and i shall be there <laughs> <laughs> uh, love it. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll come back to your wonderful farmhouse in the middle of nowhere and um and, and sit around the fire sit around the fire and smoke cigars and drink armagnac and i can get all the different armagnacs out you know how to win a man over <laughs> it's wonderful to talk to you thanks so much for your time today thank you nick bye for now happy christmas and to you well there you go. Lovely tale. Lovely voice. Lovely person. Thank you, Amanda. Um, and I know Amanda's had a tough time recently with family and not being able to get about and bereavement and stuff. So uh, sending you all our love and best wishes. Look forward to seeing you soon. I mean, what a great story. Uh, strange how things come full circle, isn't it, in life? I mean, sort of Monte Cristo, Count of Monte Cristo, Alexander Dumas, Musketeer d'Artagnan <laughs> thing seems to hover around my existence. Strange. Um, wonderful book. Romantic. Swashbuckling. And yeah, because of the obvious connotations and links with cigars. But this was nothing to do with cigars. But there I was in the wonderfully named town of Condom you know, standing by this statue of the Musketeers where it all sort of started. Um, don't know why that sort of ended up being my motif, but it has. Uh, so before we go, what can I tell you? Um, you've still got plenty of pods to enjoy in season two, and I do hope you are. Please keep letting me know. Let uh, Keep your reviews and things coming in. More than, more important than ever is that uh, I get your feedback because, you know, I am sitting here in this little shed in the freezing cold in the snow, <laughs> getting these things out for you. And without the feedback, um, it's impossible to know whether you're enjoying them or what you'd like to see. Uh, and it, it really does keep me going when I get a few kind words to say, thanks, enjoying it, or would you, why don't you try and get this person? So take the time, please. Uh, review, subscribe and all that stuff. Uh, always, of course, I've got to tell you that the book continues to crash out. Um, I think we're 5,000 copies or more now. 
always available. If you'd like to send a, a signed copy to a loved one, just contact me, nick at nick-hammond.com. What else is going on? Uh, very, very busy with Souter, uh, of course. Souter of Mount Street. Lots of hosted events and things with them. Still live twice weekly with Lawrence from Souter on Instagram, 6pm with Souter there. Check that out. Uh, we're doing several tastings, blind tastings, pairings, whiskies, all sorts going on. So don't miss that. I've also spent the last uh, week or so recording the audio book of Around the World in 80 Cigars. Lots of you have said um, you'd love to have it on audio because you don't like to read. You can't read for various reasons. Uh, the font's too small of the book. Um etc etc so this is the answer to your prayers it's going to be several hours of my voice in your lug hole if you can take that it will be available very soon via my website for download it's going to be around five quid uh, at bargain i hope you'll understand uh, keep an eye on www.nick-hammond.com uh, and of course i'll update you when that is released so that's due shortly also working hard on something you might have seen on my Insta feed, uh, the Living Years Project, a really nice project that I hope will take off and help a lot of people. Basically involves me interviewing them um, as if it were for a podcast, but for them and their families to keep forever. Um, chance to capture the voice and the stories and the charisma and the personality of someone close to you. So uh, that's also keeping me busy. Never a dull moment at Hammond Towers. With that, I think I'll let you go. I hope you've enjoyed today's pod. Keep in touch. Nice to hear from you all. I hope you're staying warm, staying safe, and most of all, look after each other. Mm -hmm.